Good morning. This morning we're going to talk about generational cycles. Generational as in your grandparents, your parents, you, your children, your grandchildren. And we're going to talk about cycles that affect them. We'll begin by starting with the first scripture you've got in your uh, outline. And put that up, please. This gives you an idea about cycles, just the beginning. Worship the Lord your God, who will save you from all your enemies. But the Israelites did not listen. They kept on doing the same things they had done before. So these nations honored the Lord, but also worshipped their idols. And their children and their grandchildren still do as their ancestors did. Now this is a busy time of year. Fourth of July is coming. I'm sure you've got a lot on your minds. But I'd like you really to focus on the first two illustrations I'm going to give you because they form the framework for what we're going to be talking about. I was coming home from work on Interstate 35, about 20 miles south of Pine City. You've probably all driven it. I was behind a huge station wagon, one of those big old boxy ones. And I was watching, and they slowly pulled over to the side of the road, and I thought, that's just like a driver's ed textbook. But they didn't stop there. Now they had my attention because he went down in the ditch, and he went across a field. And he's really bumping across his field because he's at 70 miles an hour. Now I'm really looking. And I look, and the driver is slumped over the wheel. But there's three other people who aren't. They're just yelling and screaming, and the hands are going like this, and all of a sudden that guy, his head pops up. If you've ever seen a uh, skier behind a boat doing slalom, you see that, uh, what they call a rooster tail. He comes and there is just dirt and there is just grass just flying sky high and everybody can see him. Well, I had a relative this happened to, so I knew what was going to happen. I was right behind him. So I pulled over to the center line of the freeway and I slowed down and I turned my flashers because I knew what was coming and it was him and here he came. And he just came flying and he must have had cruise control because he'd never slowed down. And he's coming, and he's going down the rich ditch, and he comes up to the side of the road, and he kind of catches, you know how the asphalt ends? He's kind of catching on there, and he got loose, went across the freeway. He went down in the median, and now he's in oncoming traffic. And I thought, I'm going to see one horrendous crash. But fortunately, he turned the wheel this way. Now he's going through the median. He goes across the road again. Now he's out in the field, and he's bumping across the field. And I go, where is this going to end? Here he comes again, and you can, the whole time, you can see these guys in the back there just screaming, and I think somebody's going to have a heart attack. He comes, and this time when he hits the center load, he just locks the brakes. He's going 70, locks the brakes, and he's just spinning donuts right down the center of the road till he stops, and we all go flying around it. Now, I'm going to use this illustration as a framework to talk about generational cycles. Let's look at the center of the road. The center of the road is faith in Jesus Christ alone. It's the Bible, nothing added, nothing subtracted. And it's also us acting... Uh, as we are supremely loved by God. All we do flows out of his love. We don't do things to be loved. We are loved, so we can naturally do things. The right side of the road is people without God. This is like in the book of Judges. You see that uh, they do whatever is right in their own eyes, a constant theme that comes over. They just, whatever they feel like doing, they do. Now, on the left side, we have religion without God. We often hear Pastor Tim talk about the Pharisees and Jesus' reaction to the Pharisees. And this is a typical group, and Jesus was quite concerned about them. And we wonder, well, how did they get to this point? How did they get to the left? Um, If you think of a freeway or road, it's got a crown on it because of rain. So it's easy to drift one way or the other, unless you just keep your focus on, on God and going down the center of the road. So they, on the left, drift is what I call Jesus plus. Jesus plus intellectualism, that can be dogma, correct theology, 
I believe right, you believe wrong, everybody but me is wrong, because I know. And then secondly, you have moralism. This is a whole bunch of rules and regulations. This is what we have to do if we're Christians. And the focus becomes that. Or you have emotionalism. It's kind of a high, let's go to church, let's sing the music, and oh, isn't this great, and then off we go. But pretty soon the plus squeezes out the Jesus, and you're left alone with religion alone. And if you're on either side of the road and you come to the realization of where you are, you're kind of like this car. It's hard to know where that road is because if you're on the right and you don't know Jesus, you look this way and, and there's Jesus in the center road, but you see all this religion. It's all one big confusing thing. And it's easy to overshoot and get into that. If you're on the left side of the road, it's Jesus plus. There's a foundation there, but you don't know what's been added, so you kind of go to the center. It's easy to overshoot this way. And there's a tremendous pull to stay in the ditch. And you wonder, generationally, how did they get this way? Well, it's, it becomes obvious if we look at the Internet and Facebook. But before we do, we're going to look at our second scripture reading, if you'll put that up. Second Corinthians, Paul says, We do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. We, however, will not boast beyond the proper limits, but will confine our boasting to the sphere of service God himself has assigned to us a sphere that includes you. But let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Now you're thinking, well, Internet, Facebook, what in the world does that have to do with it? When they first came out with the Internet, World Wide Web, they thought, wow, this is really going to change the world because everybody's going to become open-minded. Everybody's going to see what everybody else sees, and we're going to become one great world that's united. What happened instead? Facebook. Who do you have on your Facebook page? People that are all different from you, different political parties, people you argue with all the time? No, you don't do that. You have people who are like you, who think like you, who feel like you, who act like you, because you're comfortable with those people. And so what happens over time? You have an issue that comes up, and you put it on Facebook, and all your friends say the same thing. So everybody you know believes that way. People on the other side, they have all their friends, and they say, well, everybody we know believes that way. You're wrong. You're wrong. So we get this isolation. We get this, um, what's called isolation or polarization, which, which really uh, uh, reflects our society today. And Jesus put it, um, you have ears to hear, but you can't hear, and eyes to see, but you can't see, because you're so focused on what it is that you're isolated in, on what it is you believe. Now, a second illustration. Um, what is the church's response to generational cycles? Now, if you've ever watched Biggest Loser, familiar with that? It's a, it's a show where people who are two, three, four hundred pounds overweight go on diets and this real exercise cycles, and they lose weight and they have a weigh-in every week. Now, what would happen if their first weigh-in, I come up and say, wait, 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 stop, stop, stop. I'm going to pray for everybody. And poof, you're going to be instantly thin and fit. Well, that wouldn't happen, would it? Well, why wouldn't it happen? Can God do that? Well, let's not ask if he could. Would he? Or wouldn't he? Let's, uh, let's imagine if he did, what would happen? Well, pretty soon, let's say Tim had the ability to just pray, and that would happen here. Our services would go from 2 to 4 to 8 to 10. We'd just crowd this place out every day. And then it would get too big, and we'd all go to uh, maybe U.S. Bank Stadium, and we'd fill that place out and say, see, Vikings, this is more important. And you might call it the uh, thank you, Lord, smorgasbord. It's like, thanks, all right, let's have smorgasbords all over Pine City. Why not? We can eat everything we want, anytime we want, because next Sunday we know 
We can come to church, and Tim's going to pray for us, and poof, it's all gone, right? Well, actually, choices have consequences, and that's why God doesn't do it. That's how he's made it. If we put, our, put a weight on a calorie at a time, we've got to take it off a calorie at a time. It's not fun. That's the way it is. That's the way life is. Um, let's look at the uh, third scripture. <clears throat> the sins of the fathers are visited upon the children to the third and fourth generation. But I show kindness to thousands of generations of those who love me and obey my commands. This is right in the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments is kind of, an, kind of an encapsulation of the scripture. So it's kind of like we mistake the Ten Commandments and think, oh, God has all these do's and don'ts. But really what he wants is for our family, the generations that follow us, to follow him. And if we do, there are, those are the good consequences. Now you'll notice that we're now done with the scripture and it's now blank. Because we're going to do something different today. We're going to do a case study. Now, a case study would look like this. Let's say your favorite athlete on your favorite team, you watch him on Sunday, he's the hero, he wins the game. Yeah, that's my guy. Pick up the paper Sunday morning, fifth DWI. Or you find out that he's got six kids by six different women. Or you find out he beats his wife, and all of a sudden, you see, well, there's a lot, a lot of issues going on here. Here's a guy who has everything. He has all the money. He has all the fame. He has all the status. But what is his, what's the next generation going to look like? Well, if we could go forward four generations and see what happens, we would see the consequences of his behavior. But I can't tell you, come back in 120 years, we'll tell you how it went, because that doesn't work. So what we're going to do is we're going to go back in history four generations. This kind of uh, Minnesota, land of Ufta, Yashur, you betcha. So we're going to go back to Sweden. Jumplin, Sweden, with a man named Lars Anton, 1885, he was born. Now, when he was probably 9 or 10 years old, it was kind of a hard economic time, his, children, his parents apprenticed him out to work. We don't have enough food, we'll see ya. Now, if your kid was 17, that'd be one thing, but if he's 9 or 10, that's pretty tough. He ended up in the logging camps, pretty tough area, and what he did all day was shovel snow around trees so that the loggers with those big six-foot cross-cut saws could cut him. Then they found out he was really, really, really athletic. So they made him what's called a river rat. Now, a river rat, if you've ever gone to a log rolling contest at a, at a, a fair, people with these cleats on there, and they're on a log, and they're going this way, and another guy's going that, and they're trying to make the guy fall off. Well, what he did all day was he had a pole, cleats, and he rode the logs down the river. And when he did that, uh, of course, it was, free, it was uh, rain runoff, um, uh, ice, snow, so the water's 32 degrees. He had, you'd have a wool uh, outfit on because you often fall in. And if you fell in, you could get crushed by the logs or you could go underneath, can't come up, you drown. Pretty tough existence. Now, they also found out that as he was doing this, you get places back and forth by cross-country skiing. It's 1885, early 1900s. And they found he was faster than anybody else out there. So they started entering him in races. And over the next two decades, he became a national hero because he won 22 silver cups, one of the most famous skiers ever in the all of Scandinavia. But it wasn't just that. He had phenomenal ability in, in other areas. He was a phenomenal track star. He was a 100, 200 meter. He was a gymnast. 1906, he became the national sharpshooting champ. He, was, he had joined the army. This is all the sharpshooters in the entire army and everybody in the nation. He won that. So he was very, very famous. But, in 1915, at about the age of 30, he got a very young teenage girl pregnant. Now, even in our day and age, when almost anything goes, this would be pretty scandalous, and back there it was a huge thing. 
And the family of this, of this young girl pretty much rejected him. And if you asked him who his family was, well, he'd say, well, my father's a German and, and my mother's a gypsy. He wouldn't even tell you his parents were. So we have all these issues going. He's abandoned early. You won't talk about his parents because it wasn't a good situation. He grew up in a logging camp, not where you learn parenting. It's like uh, Samuel in the Old Testament. He grew up with Eli. He was a great prophet, but he never learned how to parent. So his kids turned out bad. So what kind of parenting skills do you have? And he didn't get married. So this is an illegitimate child born in 1915 when he's 30. Okay, 1920, a second illegitimate child is born to this union. And his name is John Allen Lind. Let me introduce myself. My name is Mark Lind. That's my father. So you're asking, well, why is somebody with a background like that up speaking to us? Because God intervened. That's farther down the story, but you'll see it. And it's not like I'm some kind of expert on generational cycles. It's because I've lived them, and I've known the pain, and I've known the joy, and I've known it's a, it's a roller coaster ride. Anyway, what happened next was they got married. My grandparents got married because they were going to emigrate to Canada. So at the age of 40, 1925, my grandfather moved the family to Kipling, Saskatchewan, Canada. Now, think of that. Here's a national hero known for all these different things, and he's a logger. He moves to the place like North Dakota, South Dakota. There are no trees. So you've got to learn a new occupation, you're in a new place, and what's coming ahead, 1925. What happens in 1929? The Great Depression hits. So you go from all you had in Sweden, and you're well-known, and you come and you're nobody. And you have these two kids that kind of got you into this because they're, they're the reason you had to get married and the reason you had to move. So who does he blame? The children. Wants nothing to do with those kids. He doesn't have the time of day for them, and he tells them from infancy they're worthless. So you grow up with that. Now look back. What's the generational cycle? He was abandoned nine or ten. Won't talk about his folks. Probably wasn't good. What does he do? He repeats the cycle. But this is the great part. God intervenes. Uh, my father's older brother, Ernest, when he was about 20 or 21, there was a traveling evangelist. This is the middle of nowhere. Traveling evangelist came there, a tiny little church, and Ernest accepted Jesus Christ. And he, his life changed so radically that my, my dad said, wow, i got to do this. i got, I got to accept Christ. So when my dad was 17 or so, he accepted Jesus Christ. Then tragedy struck. There's no place to get water when you live in the prairie, so they took water from a swamp, and they baptized Ernest. Ernest got typhoid fever, and he died. So the grandfather now was not only didn't like the children, but he turned against God. He was so angry at God. God took my son. I hate him. And my father's reaction was the exact opposite. He thought, if Ernest hadn't found Christ, and if I hadn't found Christ, we'd have died in our sins. He says, I am going to take my whole life, and I am going to become a pastor to rural, isolated areas that don't know Christ. But he came from this background that was, uh, you know, a lot of issues going on. And so, like I said, when you're on the right side and you're trying to come here, you kind of tend to overshoot. My dad was absolutely, totally, 100% sold out for Jesus Christ. But there were also some kind of legalism kind of issues because that's, that's what he found when he got in there. That's the group he got with. Now, my dad was also, uh, just like my grandfather, was a phenomenal athlete. He was regionally famous by the time he was 17. And when you're agricultural society, uh, you find that if you can outwork anybody else two to one and they pay by the piece, pretty soon you become pretty well off. So he was doing really well. He'd own land. He was really doing well. And he gave it all up. And so my grandfather thought, this is idiotic. 
Here's a God who hates us, and you give your life to him. So there's no support. He's totally on his own. And uh, anyway, he, he uh, also, he, he was totally sold out for Jesus, but he also became a workaholic. Now think about that. There's so much emotional pain going on there because he was never accepted. How do you deal with that? Some people go into alcohol. He went into workaholism, and that has uh, followed my family for generations as well. And uh, one thing he tried to do is he saw this cycle. He tried to change it. One thing he did is he spent all kinds of time with us as children. He did all kinds of things with us. So he was trying to change it. He was trying to, to turn this ship around. But also he had all this emotional background where, where he had been criticized his whole life. So what he did with us to straighten us out, he, anytime there's something wrong, he'd try to point out what was bad. He's trying to help us, but what we got was criticism. Now you'll get another picture of this. If you look ahead, now I'm the next generation. I went to a Christian college, and as I did, I got out of this, uh, this uh, ditch, as you could say, and I began to see that there were some cracks in this foundation. Lots of wonderful good things, lots of solid things, but some cracks. And it started to bother me. And as I got towards the end of my, uh, my fourth year of Christian college, this is how I would define myself. There's one big plus. I was totally sold out for Jesus Christ. But there were also these vague things that bothered me. There was the minus. I was legalistic. Okay, no drinking, no smoking, no dancing, no this, no that, no the other. This list just went on and on. And then I was judgmental. I was rejecting of all other denominations because we had the correct view, right? Everybody else was either carnal or maybe not a, even a Christian, but they were wrong. I was right. Our family was right. Our background was right. And I also became a workaholic. I was emotionally unavailable. Now, this is not like I have all this clear picture of this, but I kind of have these vague things like something's wrong. I, I'm struggling with these issues. So I did the hardest thing that I've ever done in my life, but the best thing I've ever done in my life, I decided to go to an interdenominational seminary. Now this, uh, if you're familiar with uh, Northwestern or KTIS in the cities, that's what Billy Graham has supported in this area of the radio station and the college. Now the the seminary that he has supported is called Gordon-Conwell Seminary in Boston. So it's a very sound seminary, but it had about 80 different denominations in it. Now, when I went out there, I'm going to describe what I was dealing with and what happened in this context. I'm going to tell you two phenomenal miracles that took place and one very bitter experience. And I'm going to relate them together. Now, the miracles. When I was in college, I loved it. I was just independent, free, just absolutely loved it. But now that I'm dealing with this and I'm going to an interdenominational seminary and it's 1,500 miles away from anybody I know, all of a sudden I'm lonely. First time in my life, I really kind of felt lonely and just separate from everything, and struggling. And so I got out there, and I thought, well, what do you do when you're down, and you're lonely, and you're struggling? Well, you find a church. That's the thing to do. You find people like you. You get a support group. So the first Sunday I was there, I walked in the door. First announcement, we're having a potluck today for all the new students. I thought, this is my church. Love this place. Free food. So anyway, after the service, they took all the students that came, and they had families to, to match the students. And it turned out they had one family, for every student. And I sat down with this family, and they told me their name, and they said, what's your name? And I said, I'm Mark Lynn from Minnesota. And the woman says, get this, is your father's name Alan? Think about this. My father was born in Sweden, raised in Canada. He went to a seminary in, in, uh, in Minnesota very briefly, but he worked a full-time job and two part-time jobs. His friends said, we never see you. And here's a woman who went to the college who happened to meet him, 30 years later, 1,500 miles away, here's the last name and says, is this your father? 
what are the odds of that? And this family said, well, you know what? You're all alone out here. Why don't you come and be part of our family? We will support you. We will and you will not live with them, but anytime you want to come, we're here for you. Bang, right in my lap. God did this. Now, a second miracle that happened. I had enough money that was borrowed. I had enough money to, to pay for tuition for the whole year, but I only had enough money for room and board for about three to four months. What am I going to do? Well, I don't know. It was pretty academic seminary. It was kind of hard. I thought, man, I've got to really study, and I'm dealing with a lot of stuff. Came in December. Total stranger walked up to me and said, do you want a job as a live-in cook for an elderly couple? And I said, I sure do. I could use it, but I can't cook. Out of luck. And he said, that's fine. I'll teach you. No big deal. I said, oh, that sounds good. So I said, okay, give me the address. I'll go there. Okay, I got the address, and I went there. I'm not from the area. This meant, address meant nothing to me. I drive up, and there is this humongous, it's bigger than this room, and farther and deeper, mansion on the ocean. I mean, we're talking, wow, this is in Beverly Hills, I mean, Beverly Farms, Massachusetts, and what's named after Beverly Farms, Massachusetts is Beverly Hills, California. You've probably heard of that. A lot of rich people live there. So I thought, okay, you know, this could be a joke. But I'm going to go up, and I'm going to knock on the door, and I'm going to see what happens. Hi, I'm here for the job of living cook. Great, come on in. I said, but I don't know how to cook. That's fine, we'll teach you. Just move your stuff in. So I moved my stuff in, and on the way home, I went, that's pretty exciting. So I went and told this family, the Petersons. And, and the wife goes, you know who that is? I said, not a clue. That is Professor Emeritus, Harvard Graduate School of Science, fifth generation doctor, foremost expert in his field in the world. He is world famous. And later I was shown a social register of who's who in the United States in the social register. 2,000 people. He and his wife were both in it. She's a famous opera star. Okay, so these two phenomenal miracles happened. Well, why would they happen? Well, my dad was a phenomenal man of prayer. He was just astounding. When he prayed, things happened. And my only explanation is that my father was praying for me, and these things happened. So here we have a phenomenal man of prayer. Now let me tell you a bitter experience, a very bitter experience. Of course, here I am at the seminary. From this background, all these things are coming up. You know, dancing. Well, we can't dance. Well, why not? And, and you know, when you're in, in kindergarten, you can say, well, my daddy says so. That does not fly at grad school. <laughs> so I wrote my dad, and I said, well, you know, we don't dance. And I don't know why. Is it in the scripture? Is there some really good explanation for this? I waited for the letter. And I got a letter back, many pages. Page after page after page of why he was ashamed of me. I was so angry. There was not one word about the Bible, about dancing, about any explanation. Just all why he was so ashamed of me. I was just trembling with rage and I ripped this thing up into so many little pieces and I threw it away. Now what was happening? Why did that happen? Well let me uh, explain that in two different ways. First I'll tell you what was happening with me at the same time. And then I'll go with my dad because it was pretty much the same thing. Think of me in two different worlds now. I'm living with a professor emeritus of Harvard Graduate School of Science. Now I don't know what your opinion is of, of Harvard but Brilliant people, but often atheists and agnostics. And we had a cross-registration program with Harvard Grad School. So there were students and professors coming back and forth. So you had this part that you're interacting with. Now, here I am in another world. I'm at Gordon-Conwell Seminary with people, with professors and students who love the Lord more than I do. It's just really amazing. And they show the fruits of the Spirit. Which one is going to be harder for me? This is totally counterintuitive. It's exactly the opposite of what you'd think. Imagine 
if, if I've been married 37 years to my wife, Diane, imagine if somebody told me your wife doesn't exist and tried to prove it. No matter how brilliant they were, it's like, 37 years, man, you can't tell me that. Now imagine that same, those brilliant people tell you, you know, try to convince you God doesn't exist. Well, I've been a Christian for decades, you know, that doesn't fly. And actually it was kind of fun and entertaining because I looked so stupid when I dealt with these people, especially this professor. He was so brilliant that I would often go away laughing at myself. And I thought, man, alive, it's amazing how ignorant you are compared to this guy. So that wasn't as, I mean, it, was, it, it could be hard. I, mean, I didn't like to look stupid anymore than anybody else does. But that wasn't the biggest stress. Now picture me at the seminary. Think of what I'm doing. Okay, I have grown up in a house of faith with a solid foundation in Jesus Christ that cannot be moved. But there are additions that have been added to it. Don't drink, don't dance, don't smoke, whatever. And when I test these additions, I step on that foundation, it crumbles and the whole thing collapses. So I'm living in this house that part of it is rock solid and part of it's collapsing, and I don't know the difference. I kind of have an idea where they are, but I don't really know. So I'm constantly stressed out because I think, well, what's going what's to fall next? What can I really, and under some things I can really count on, I go, yes, and there are other things like, wow, I don't know. And, and the students weren't trying to harass me or anything, but whenever we got in a discussion, these things came up. That was very stressful. Now, let's go to my father. When, I, when this happened to me, it was very upsetting. But you'll be surprised at what really, really, really made me mad. Here I talked to God and I said, you know what, God? My father has dedicated his entire life to serving you. Why don't you heal him? And it made me so angry. In fact, it made me so angry that I went to a counselor. Christian counselor, PhD, also had a degree in Bible. And I asked him, well, what's going on here? And the counselor basically said, well, he basically introduced me to generational cycles. He said, now think of your dad. He's got the same thing you do. He's got this whole idea what faith is. A lot of it's rock solid and some of it isn't. But if you question anything, to him it's one big thing. And to question anything is to question everything. And he's trying to keep you in the faith. He's worried you're going to go off somewhere. Because if you point out a problem, you become the problem. That's how it works. He said, but let's get back to generational cycles. He said, the problem isn't trying to figure out where somebody is, but how far they've come. Think of this. Think of a mountain huge mountain, and you're placed somewhere on that mountain in your life, and you're trying to work your way up towards God. And as you look around, you see that you're above other people, but what you don't know is how far they've come. Take another example. Take uh, uh, um, what they call a marathon. Now, you're watching a marathon. You're a spectator, and you see this guy, man, he's just coming along, and he's on his tiptoes, and he's kind of, well, he's having a good time. He's really a good runner. You're about halfway under. This guy's going to win this thing. And then you watch, and there's another guy coming along, and you think, this guy's going to drop over and die. I'm going to be, get the paramedic. This guy's not going to make it. And then you find out later, if God was judging this race, God declared the second guy the winner. Well, how in the world is that? And God says, well, you know what? That guy started 10 miles back at the start line. The other guy that you saw, he lives around the block. That's all the farther he came. Now, if you think of it economically, some people are really rich. And their kids really get a good start. So they're kind of ahead of the game. And then think of somebody from a third world country who's really poor. Now they've really come a long way. They might still be behind this other person. But, they're, but they've come farther. And, and uh, in, in the Bible we keep reading, the first will be last and the last will be first. And I think this is kind of what God's referring to. He said the issue is not where you are, but how far you've come. 
And he said, when you look around you, and I think this is important for us because we have Celebrate Recovery, and this is kind of what we do here, a lot of it, is generational cycles. We're helping people get out of generational cycles. And you never know when you sit here if the person next to you or in front of you or in back of you has come twice as far as you. You might think you're ahead of them, but you can't look down on them. And, and maybe if you're someone who's become a Christian and for maybe years you've been working on something, oh, I'm not as far as I should be, think of how far you've come. Stop occasionally and look back. Now, let's go on to the next generation. And we'll give you a view of one weekend. Now, we were going to go on a camping trip, our family. And it was weather like this, really hot, really sticky. And I worked at a job where we happened to be, I'm a cabinet maker, we happened to be really far behind. So we, I was putting in with my travel time 65-hour weeks. You bring this heat in, you up at about 5 degrees, and you add sawdust. It's pretty miserable to work in. After five days of that, I didn't want to go on a camping trip. But it's like, well, I promised this. This is a good thing. should have family time. And so I was going to go on this camping trip. But as we got, when we got there, I turned to the kids and I said, I am tired and ornery. They didn't need to hear me say that because they already knew that. Everybody already knew that. It was pretty obvious. What they needed to know is that I knew it. And I needed to be honest with myself. Because when you have children, what the children hear if you're, if you're ornery or, or agitated, what did I do wrong? They blame themselves. You got to, it's not you, it's me. So when we got there, I said, now this is what I need from you. I need you to help me set up so I can go to sleep. That's what I need. And then after we do that, you can stay up as late as you want with your mom. You can do anything that she lets you do. Try not to make too much noise. I didn't say, don't make any noise. I said, try not to, because for the next half hour, it's, quiet, dad's trying to sleep. But I did get to sleep. Anyway, the next morning, we were having breakfast, and I was leading the prayer, and I said, thank you, Lord, that I'm rested, and I'm not ornery like yesterday. And the prayer ended there, because a praise service broke out. Hallelujah! Preach it, Daddy! And the wife says, Amen, Amen, Amen. <laughs> so now we could process it. Do you see what's going on here? When you're trying to help the next generation, you have to be honest with yourself. And you have to start. And I say, Well, everybody's honest with themselves, right? Well, I would say in the church, everybody's as, as honest with other people as they are with themselves. But are we really honest with ourselves? Let me give you an illustration. Imagine a middle aged couple. It's the middle of winter, and they said, well, we're going to go to the ocean. So they have to get their swimsuits. Swimsuits out. Well, the wife has just been to the doctor, and the doctor says, man, you're like 10 to 15 pounds underweight. You're almost anorexic. You've got to gain some weight. She puts on her swimsuit and looks in the mirror. What does she say? You guessed it, right? I'm fat. I've got to lose weight. That's what she sees. That's her view of reality. Now let's picture the man. The man's like 50 to 100 pounds overweight. His belly is so big he can't see his feet. He literally walks by faith because he can't see where, where he's walking with. <laughs> okay, now what does he do when he looks in the mirror? Oh, yeah, baby, I'm the man. It turns out I'm a chick magnet. You're so glad you already married to me. <laughs> now, if you ever a kid and you played with magnets, you know, you put them, they, they attract. When you put them this way, you put them this way, they repel. That's the kind of magnet he is with chicks. He repels them. But is he honest with himself? See, that's very humorous illustration, but are we honest with ourselves? What we need to do is... Be honest. And then the next thing I did was I told my kids what I needed, what I expected. And we went with that. And then uh, I, I, we went with that. And then the next morning, when, when, when it passed, we could process it. We could talk about this. And, and it's kind of funny, not this illustration, but I asked my kids one time, you kind of check, how am I doing as a dad? I hate to ask that because I feel like, oh, they're going to really jump on me. But you need to ask that once in a while because you need that kind of feedback. 
or what have we done that's, that's really helped you? And one, it was amazing. One of, the, one of the girls said, just the fact that you can be, make mistakes, you can have bad moods, and you can tell us, and then we can process it, it's like, I know it's okay if I make mistakes. I know that it's okay if I do things, because then I can learn to process it with you or with God or with whoever. Or winding down to the end here, I want to talk to you about one more thing. Remember what, the, what we're talking about in this series with Tim? It's called Spirit Wars. Is Satan happy that we're starting to succeed and turn this around? No, he's not. So as we're trying to turn the Titanic, he puts an iceberg in our way that almost brings us. And I can, re- I can remember the day, November 4th, 2002. I sent my daughter down two days earlier to visit Bethel College. As a college visit, she went with two friends from the church. She was supposed to be back at noon on Sunday. Noon came, and one came, and she wasn't home. And I, I, I thought, well, she's be shopping. She's out eating with the kids. And then two came and three came, and I was mad, because we have this rule, if life happens, that's okay. Just let us know. We'll deal with it. We can work, to, work around stuff. Four came, and five came, and now I was really worried. And, and there was a knock at the door. It said, there's been an accident. Your daughter has been taken by ambulance to a hospital 50 miles away. 50 miles. That began a four-year roller coaster. We got there, and we thought, well, things are okay, because they said, well, you know, she's really banged up. She's got neck injuries, back injuries, but you can actually take her home. You've got to watch this. You've got to do that. You've got to bring her to the hospital. You've got to deal with this stuff. She can take her home. We thought, good. We made it. And then we saw the accident vehicle. And we thought the same as everybody who saw the accident and the parents. Nobody could walk away from this. It's impossible. What happened? She says, the driver dropped a French fry on the floor going 80 miles an hour with the cruise control set on the freeway, and he leaned over to pick it up. And when he did that, he turned this, and we rolled. That quick, she could have been gone. But I thought, that's great, all right? She's here, it's okay. Then we took her home, and she, she, uh, what I didn't know was that she, well, she became a totally different person. And I thought, well, you know, it's a bad accident. It's going to happen. You know, it's going to be a week. Well, a week became a month, and a month became a year, and it became a couple of years. She was a totally different person. The person that had gone down to the, see that, to see the school was fun-loving, and she had all her friends, and if school was open, she wanted to be there. The girl that came back hated school, didn't want anything to do with her friends, was depressed, was angry. And what do you do, drag her to school? She hated school so much. If it wasn't for PSEO, I don't know what we've done, because she left school. She went independent college classes until she graduated. And then she got into school, college, and we found that she couldn't read a book for more than 20 minutes. This is the problem if you're in college. She was a nursing major, kind of a tough major. She couldn't remember what she read the next day. And we thought, man, alive, what's going on here? And, and she was still doing fairly okay in school, but we just couldn't figure it out. And this went on for like two more years. And then my sister-in-law sent us an article from the paper about young women in their early 20s with ADD. It read just like everything that she was experiencing, everything that she was doing. We thought, wow, it's almost like they wrote it about her. So, uh, and then I, I looked it up a bit, and it said, a very interesting article, it said, if your child has ADD and they are in a high-speed rollover, it disorients their brain, so they get, they get uh, symptoms similar to like post-traumatic stress disorder. And all these crazy things will happen. I thought, Four years, 
all the doctors we went to. Nobody could, nobody could figure this out. Nobody could make sense. And the other thing that happened when this was happening, the insurance company refused to pay any bills. So I went to the guy and I said, how can you not pay any bills? By law, Minnesota state law. Here's the law. It says single car accident, insurer responsible 100%. How can you not pay? And he smiles. And he says, we've learned that if we deny any and all claims, 90% of people won't even pursue it. That frees us up to have all the time and energy to make life as miserable as we can for the last 10%. And he did. That whole time, I'm going to court. And she's a minor. I'm going to court with her whole stuff. Finally, we got it set. Every time I went, the judge says, you got to pay. What's wrong with you? Oh, okay. Didn't know that. And they paid. So all these things are going on. But finally, we turn this around. And, and i got to end it here because we don't have much more time. But, but what happened is when my daughter went through all this, she learned what, what disabilities are. She learned what struggles are. And when she got, in, in fact, the good news is when they got this diagnosis, they had a simple medication they could put her on. And I kid you not, bang, within one hour, she could pick up a textbook and read the whole thing and remember the whole thing the next day. And she went from, from average grades to 4.0, bang, like that. It's like, where was all this? But what she learned from it is the important thing. She learned that people struggle. Life can be hard. And she changed majors to elementary school. She became an elementary school teacher. And now she specializes in helping kids who have learning disabilities function in school. And she provides for one year for them a safe, loving, caring environment. And she says at least they know, no matter what their background is, no matter which side of the ditch they come from, no matter what their struggles are, they know what healthy is for one year. So the point is, we're still working on turning this whole thing around, but we've seen success. But at least you can see what the struggles are, and I think hopefully that will open all of our minds to what we do here. We work with Celebrate Recovery, we work with a lot of people, and probably all of us have something in our background we're struggling with, but we can turn it around, and God will help us. One last comment before we close in prayer. I was listening to a radio broadcast by a uh, president of a Christian college, and he was talking about they had done a study on which is better, homeschooling or public schooling. I'm not going there, but what he found was something. When, sometimes when you analyze something like this, you find something you didn't find, and then you focus on that. They found when they started to study it, that that wasn't the real issue. The issue that made the biggest difference in long-term Christian health of students throughout life were two things. First of all, they found that it's the parents who teach their children that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. God's sovereignty, God's in control. They teach their students that. The second thing they do is they process life with them as it happens in real time. And that can be as simple as, I don't know, but we can talk about it. Or um, you don't have an answer. Well, that's hard. What, what have you thought? What have you come up with it? Or you can see what happens over time and write them down and, and show, well, we didn't know what happened, but here. But often you can, can just work through things. I just wanted to point out, what is it that Tim does with us every Sunday? What's the series we're on? Spirit Wars. What is that? Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. What is the second thing Tim does with us? 
He processes real-life events in real time and shows us how to do that. So what we learn from Tim is also the thing that will really help us as we try to change the lives of our children and turn around generations going forward. God's in control. Let's process this. Close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much that you are sovereign, that you help us. No matter which ditch we're in, you can get us out, even if it takes time and even if we go all over the place. And even if we get discouraged sometimes, we can, we can open our eyes and you can show us how far we've come up that hill, how far you've been with us, and that we can have confidence that as we continue up that hill, you'll, can, you'll be there with us and you'll help us grow. So be with us today, Lord, and just remind us of your love for us so that we can do all we do out of, as a response to that. In Jesus' name, amen. Dismissed.